0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 17. Last time, so we're continuing Romans 4 today, which is largely um, related to the life of Abraham and the faith of Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham, especially God's promises to Abraham. So last time we read from Genesis 15, which is the chapter that reports that Abraham believed that God and it was accounted him as righteousness. Uh, Genesis 17 is a further uh, unfolding of God's covenant relationship with Abraham um, in a a further and um, uh, further developed way. So we're going to read that chapter today. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that very day. Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, both born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Amen. Okay, now let's turn to Romans chapter 7 uh, chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we'll read starting with verse 13. Romans 4.13 For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to tell you one of my favorite Sunday school songs. It is not uh, Deep and Wide, although that one's fine. The Holy Spirit is a fountain of living waters flowing out of our hearts when we believe in Jesus. Um, It's not the B-I-B-L-E, although that is the book for me. It's a good uh, Sola Scriptura song, so I like that one. And um, Jesus Loves Me, of course, that's up there near the top of the list. That one, it's one that doesn't really get old. I was just singing it to Benjamin this morning, getting him dressed for church, and... um, It's one of those songs that I think really grows deeper along with us as we get older, actually, more profound. But the one I have in mind for this morning that is truly, I think, my favorite Sunday school song. If you know me, you know I'm bad at picking favorites, but I think this has got to be it. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Turn around, sit down. I like this song uh, because it is a song about covenant theology. And it is teaching our kids that to be a child of Abraham... It doesn't mean that you're to be a child of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham physically. Instead, what you need to do is to share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. I love that song. And so, a big question for each of us here today, which you ask yourself as we go along, well, actually, a couple of them. First of all, are you one of Abraham's children? And if so, why? Why do you think that the answer to that question is a yes? And furthermore, do you feel like you could explain to somebody else, if they are a Christian, um, what it means that they also are a true child of Abraham? Or could you explain to somebody else, this important, if they're not a Christian, how they can become a true child of Abraham? Let me give you our outline today. First, the path to the promise, verses 13 to 15. Second, the pattern of the promise, verses 16 to 22. And finally, the person behind the promise, verses 23 to 25. Okay, so first, the path to the promise. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. And he's talking about the promise, um, at least in part, the promise we read a few minutes ago from Genesis 17, where God said, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God says, I'm going to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I'm going to give you and your offspring after you the the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What we want to see here is that the land of Canaan, specifically, is the, the bullseye for this promised Abraham. But we also want to recognize, in light of the bigger picture of Genesis and the Old Testament, that the promise is also bigger than just the um, boundaries of the land of Canaan. Later in Genesis 22, God says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then like back in chapter 12, he says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And as you trace these promises, they develop through the Old Testament, what you see is that the promise is, yes, about land of Canaan, but it's about more than Canaan. It's this overflowing promise, overflowing the boundaries of Canaan to take in, ultimately, the whole world. That land promise of Canaan um, is forward-pointing to God's reign over his entire creation as his kingdom, which is where we're headed in the Great Commission after the coming of Jesus. Okay, so the question is this. What was the pathway God laid out for Abraham to receiving that promise? What was Abraham's pathway to receiving that promise? We talked about this before. Was it, Abraham, you need to jump through these hoops. You need to achieve and strive and fight and scratch and claw your way to the promise. Um, We we talked about how uh, we asked the question, did God put the promise kind of as it were up on a mountain or a cliff somewhere so that Abraham needed to climb up and get it? Or or did he bury it deep down in the ocean somewhere where Abraham was going to have to dive down and go and get it? No. What God did was he handed it to Abraham as a gift. That's the nature of a promise. Here is the promise. You don't have to earn it you never could earn it. It's too valuable to earn and you're too weak and sinful even to start along that pathway of earning it. But I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you and I want you to receive it, Abraham, with an open hand, a humble, trusting heart. Period. That's the pathway to the promise. I hasten to add, that's not mean. that does not mean that Abraham's obedience was irrelevant altogether or that God gave Abraham no commands. God gave Abraham all kinds of commands. In fact, Genesis 17 begins, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Okay? Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And so this outworking of the covenant goes hand in hand with Abraham's obedience. Although it is not founded upon or achieved through Abraham's obedience. This is a tricky... um, Distinction that has led to a lot of bad teaching in the past when people have not gotten this right. So we're going to seek to think carefully about what God is saying, what Paul is and is not saying. Think about this. How much sense would it make for somebody who had been given so much by God to then go and live without any regard for the law of God, the commands of God, and uh, the covenant signs and ceremonies that God gave to him to mark and ratify and symbolize those promises. In other words, Abraham, it wouldn't make sense for Abraham just to, to take the benefits of the promise, but then just go out and live however he chose. right? God was calling Abraham to live like a covenant man, to live like God was really his God to live as though he really belonged to the Lord. And by the way, Paul himself, this great preacher of justification by faith alone, is going to go on in this very book um, to show that people who are justified by faith aren't therefore off the hook for obeying God's law. Obedience always flows from a living faith. It's one of the marks of a living faith. But here's the important thing to go back to now. That obedience God called Abraham to, that character that God commanded, and I would even say required, that was not what undergirded the covenant relationship. What undergirded, what guaranteed the covenant relationship the promise was, was the promise of God. And the pathway to receiving that promise for Abraham was not the pathway of law-keeping. It was not works. It was not obedience. It was not his strength of character. It was faith and faith alone. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And Paul goes on here to explain that it could not be otherwise; it would never work the other way. For Paul says, "If if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, well, faith is null and the promise is void." In other words, if God had told Abraham, "Okay, Abraham, here's the promise. Well, come and get it." You know, you can you can get it if you work hard enough. You know, you've got to earn this from me. You've got to deserve it. Earn the right to get this promise. Well, that's not a promise. That's a contradiction in terms. It's not a promise at all. That's a bargain. That's a bargain. And there's a big difference between a promise and a bargain. Like we talked about last time, the difference between a gift versus a transaction. Faith receives, work receives. And so, if you're earning a reward, you're simply not receiving a gift. You can't do both at the same time. If you're working to get what you want from God, then you're not really trusting God for it. You're trying to compel Him to give it to you. And those are two very different things. Um, An analogy for this we know how this works with love, right? True love is something that you can't buy. It's something that has to be freely given and freely received, or else it's something else entirely. If you try to buy it, then what you get is not love. You just can't describe it that way. And there's something similar going on with faith versus law-keeping. There's another element to this. If Abraham's pathway to the promise was to be through law-keeping, Paul's pointing out the the hard fact is that he never would have made it to the promise by that path. Nobody makes it to the promise by taking the path of Um, law-keeping. My dad likes to say when people ask him for directions, oh, you can't get there from here. (laughs) Uh, Well, the reality here is you can't get there by that path from here. Um, and why is that? It's because the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath, inevitably, every time, for sinners. Uh, he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. There is no transgression. In other words, if you don't have a law to break, then nobody can break the law. But the implication is the kind of the converse of that, that as soon as you introduce a law to sinful people like us, immediately you get transgressions galore. Because that's what comes naturally to us. It's our default mode. We are lawbreakers from birth. It's what we do. Give us a law, and we are going to find a way to break it. That's what the human race has done ever since Adam broke God's very first law. And so the pathway to the promise cannot be through law-keeping. There has to be a different pathway if if sinners are going to get there, if Abraham is going to get there, if we're going to get there. The only pathway sinners can take to get to the promised blessings is the pathway of faith, of trusting God's word, receiving what God offers as a free gift of grace alone. And that is what Paul underlines in verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith. It has to depend on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring because otherwise it won't be guaranteed. Right? It will always be tentative. God's promise can guarantee something. Our efforts cannot. Because our efforts are always in question. Are they going to be good enough today? God's promise can guarantee what our efforts cannot we want to see in the flow of thought here is Pauls starting to turn a corner now as we as we go into verse 16 because he's not just talking about Abraham uh, for Abraham's sake this is not just a case study of Abraham's life in the abstract Abraham does not only illustrate this pathway to the promise he does more than that he sets for all who come after him a pattern and that's our second point the pattern of of the promise. The promise is going to rest on grace, Paul says, and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, he says, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Remember, as Paul is writing to the Roman church, the church in Rome here, this is a mixed community of Jews and Gentiles trying to live together, probably people from many different ethnic backgrounds from around the Mediterranean world, perhaps beyond even the Mediterranean world. But all of them, Paul says, all of them are children of Abraham. What a radical notion, especially for those of Jewish background. And why is that? Well, it's because God told Abraham in the first place that he was going to be the father of many nations. And now many nations are gathering together to become Abraham's children, just like God promised at the very beginning. It's the point of the Great Commission. It's the point of the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, that whole trajectory. So let's look a little bit more at the way that Abraham sets the pattern for all of us, all of us who need to come to God by that pathway of faith. First, look at what he says about this God Abraham trusted, the God in whom he believed. What does he say about God? So far, we've been talking a lot about faith. When we talk about faith versus works, we can get very focused on on ourselves. What do we need to do? What is God requiring of us? This is very important to see that Paul here focuses on God. What kind of God is this? The God in whom he believed is the kind of God, Paul says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Something from nothing. Life out of death. Oh. Two great examples of this that are the most familiar to us that illustrate this are, first, the creation of the world, right? Let there be light, and there was light, where there was no such thing as light before. At least not physical light. God is light, but, of course, that's an analogy drawn from creation. (coughs) Oops, sorry about that. Uh, And then there's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? That that new creation, we could say, where God brought life out of the grave, left behind an empty tomb, right? That resurrection of Jesus, that new creation, that's such a big part of Christian hope, that resurrection of Jesus is prefigured, it's prefigured in a very important way in the life of Abraham when it came to the birth of Isaac. All of these promises that God made to Abraham about offspring. Remember, those promises came to Abraham when he was a very old man and his wife Sarah was already way, way past the normal age for childbearing. And so it says, in hope, verse 18, he believed against hope. It says, he did not weaken in faith. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. You see, you see how Paul's connecting here, again, the birth of Isaac with this something from nothing, life out of death theme. His body was as good as dead, but God's going to bring life. Uh, the birth of Isaac was not a literal resurrection, but it was God supernaturally giving new life through the bodies of Abraham and Sarah that naturally did not have the power to do it. And, of course, this should make us think about the later episode of the so-called sacrifice of Isaac, which was actually the non-sacrifice of Isaac, because Isaac was not sacrificed. He was brought back from the brink of death when the Lord provided for him a substitute. And Hebrews tells us that in that moment, Abraham believed God even then, that he was able even to bring Isaac back from the dead. I think it would be appropriate to have both of those occasions uh, in mind, the birth and that later non-sacrifice of Isaac, when Paul says, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. What I want to show you here is that this pattern of Abraham This pattern tells us something very important about what faith is. Many people are confused about what faith even is in the first place. A lot of people, when they talk about faith, they don't really know what they're talking about. Or they mean by it something very different from what we're reading here. As Paul defines faith. Um, To some people, faith is basically a feeling. I just feel this transcendent sense of meaning and connection with the supernatural. And people think that's faith. For some people, faith is, they think of it as a conscious decision to reject what they think and know and to go instead, uh, go along with something that to them doesn't seem reasonable or sensible, but they're going to try to believe it anyway for various reasons, maybe because it makes them feel better, maybe because it helps them to fit in, maybe just because they think that's what God wants them to do. Uh, Mark Twain put it very starkly when he he tried to say that faith is believing what you know ain't so, believing against reason, believing contrary to the evidence, this blind leap that you can't really justify, but you're going to do it anyway. None of those are what faith really is. None of those things are the way the Bible defines faith. And that is certainly not the faith of Abraham. True, God was telling him to believe something remarkable, something supernatural, something unprecedented, something different from his everyday experience, something that seemed perhaps impossible. It was going to be miraculous beyond nature. And so I'm not saying that it was something easy to believe. But what I I do want to show you here is that Abraham had good reason to believe it. He believed not against reason or evidence, not contrary to reason or evidence. It says he hoped against hope. He hoped in something that was hard to hope for, but he hoped on solid grounds. He believed on solid grounds that this was the promise of a faithful, true, almighty, and good God. A God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham did not leap blindly into the dark when he believed God. Notice it says that Abraham was fully convinced. Okay? This is not faith versus reason. This is Abraham being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See what he was fully convinced of. It was something about God. Character of God. Faith is warranted because it rests on the character of God. So faith does involve believing in things that we cannot see. That's true. It does involve depending on someone else's authority for things that we cannot touch or hear or otherwise sense directly for ourselves, which, by the way, we do all the time about all kinds of things, that things we've never seen or experienced firsthand, and yet we believe other people. Wouldn't they tell us about them? We believe because we think those people are trustworthy. We can believe what they say. See, what makes all the difference in these cases is that the person we are trustworthy that we are trusting is a trustworthy person. And so, do you see how here how it is the character of God that the promise depends on? It is the character of God that our faith rests in, and it is the character of God that guarantees the final outcome. And so biblical faith is not contrary to reason. It is supremely reasonable. What could be more reasonable than trusting the word of this kind of God? And then at last, we come to the person behind the promise. And we have been talking about him already, this this trustworthy God, Abraham believed in, but there is more, of course, that this God has done, says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. See, it's the same God who brought life out of Sarah's dead womb, who also brought life out of Jesus' tomb. It is the same God then and now. The same God who has extended to us a promise of blessing. And it is the same faith then and now that receives that promise. Receives it in humble trust without trying to earn it. Now, when we're called to believe the gospel, the good news about about Jesus, what we are being called to believe in is the greatest miracle of all, which is the resurrection of Christ, the greatest miracle of all time. And in the final verse of this chapter, um, Paul gives us a very profound insight into the meaning of that resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus our Lord, Paul says, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is a very rich verse. Tons of teaching in this one little, um, these couple of phrases. I want you to notice this two sided perspective on the work of Jesus. On the one hand, it says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. This is talking about what we call Jesus' substitutionary suffering suffering as our substitute, taking our place, taking our spot on the cross and suffering the righteous outpouring of judgment that our trespasses justly deserved from God. An essential aspect of the gospel. But it's not the entire gospel. Because that's not all that Jesus did. When some people think about the gospel, they'll stop there and they'll say, well, the gospel says that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And you could do a lot worse than that. Actually, That actually is a pretty good statement of the gospel. I'd be very happy for... Any of you to articulate that as your own expression of your faith, for any of you to say that as a way of sharing the gospel with someone else, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What could be a clearer statement than that? But I want you to understand that there's there's more, there's more to set to be said. Because that's not all Jesus did, right? That was not the end. It wouldn't be good news if Jesus was still in the tomb after the cross, right? Jesus did not just suffer in your place. He also obeyed in your place. He earned for you the perfect record of righteousness that you owed to God, but you could never put together yourself. He wove that that perfect robe of righteousness, like the one that God gave to Joshua the high priest uh, last Sunday night in Zechariah chapter 3. And where is it that we find that righteousness of Jesus, that perfect record of Jesus, kind of openly proclaimed and made available to us? Well, it's in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus could rightly be described as the moment of Jesus' justification. Not because Jesus needed to be forgiven of anything, he didn't. For us, justification involves forgiveness of our sins, Jesus didn't have to be forgiven. But if we define justification as being declared righteous by God, God declaring someone righteous, when Jesus rose from the dead, God was declaring him righteous. Jesus was justified in his resurrection. And it's because Jesus rose from the dead that we can be justified in union with him. Yes, Jesus Jesus willingly underwent death for us. But death couldn't hold Jesus because he didn't deserve that death. He was righteous, and because he was righteous, he is able to give that righteousness to everyone who trusts in him, who rests in his work for them, who believes in his good news, who receives his promise. Not just of sin's forgiveness, but also of resurrection life. That's the good news more fully stated. And it's good news for all of us today who are coming to God in the same way that Abraham did. I want to comment for a second on the the tricky nature of giving one sermon at a time over the course of many months on a book that was designed to be read in one sitting by the church. As I mentioned earlier, we focused a lot on this faith alone aspect of justification. We've only begun to touch on the obedience that God required of Abraham. We're going to get to that extensively, especially in the second half of Romans, also chapter 6. We're going to talk a lot about obedience, the need for holiness in the Christian life. And so I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea from this intense focus on chapters 3 and 4 that obedience is not important. On the contrary, the same God who counted Abraham righteous on the basis of faith alone also told him in Genesis 17, 1, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. It is because we have been justified by this free grace of God that God calls you today also to walk before him and be blameless. And so I don't want to leave out that um, command of God that that Paul is going to insist on throughout this book, that because of all this grace of God, he's calling you to a purity of life, uh, um, vigorous um, application of your devotion, your will, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, diligent obedience to his law, and putting to death of sin, All these things are are essential for the Christian life. I'm also thankful for this opportunity in chapters 3 and 4 to bask in this free and extravagant promise of God to us who have not obeyed and who don't deserve it. And so this chapter does indeed give us good news as we come to God in the same way our father Abraham did. We who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And the Lord has set that man before us this morning as a pattern of faith, as a way of helping us grow, so that we will not weaken in faith when we consider the great obstacles, as it seems, to God's promises coming true for us, including, by the way, our own sin. And our own weakness. God has given us this pattern this morning so that no unbelief will make us waver concerning the promise of God, but so that we will grow strong in our faith as we give glory to God, fully convinced that God is able, that God is able. You are not able, but God is able. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So, let's all praise the Lord, and let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for these precious promises, and we ask that you would build them, build them into our hearts, help us to live out of them. To live as though these things are really true, instead of contradicting them with our attitudes and our lives and our choices, Lord, help us. We are weak, but you are strong. Lord, strengthen our faith so we would not waver concerning your promise, but be fully convinced that you are able to do what you have promised to us in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.